Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. John chapter 14, we're going to read 14 verses of Scripture, beginning with verse 1. This is page 901 on your pew Bibles. John is writing the words of Jesus when Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is forever settled in heaven. Your prophet Isaiah said, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. It is sharp and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the dividing asunder of soul and spirits, and your word is a deserter of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. So, Lord, this morning I ask that this people would not hear my words this morning, but that they would hear your word clearly, minister to us and speak to us. You've already told us your word never returns void. So do what you have purposed in this place is our prayer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. John chapter 14 opens with Jesus saying, let not your heart be troubled. Now remember from last week, we know that in this passage, Jesus is getting ready to die. He's getting ready to die a very brutal, gruesome death. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled as he is preparing for death. The people he is speaking to, they are getting ready to have troubled hearts. They are getting ready to go through a very difficult time themselves. But he is also teaching them that just as they have believed in God, remember he's speaking to a largely Jewish audience. They know their Old Testaments. They know their Bibles. They know their scriptures. They've believed in God all their lives. Their forefathers have believed in God for thousands of years. And he says, just as you have believed in God, 
believe also in me. He is establishing his identity that I am the Son of God. We've seen this over and over through John. He needs the people to understand who I am. I am the Son of God. And to the Jews, the way to God, the way to being in right standing with God, is through obedience to the law of Moses. I must obey the Old Testament law. We are in the New Testament, but it's, Jesus has not died yet. He has not been resurrected. We're still under the law to the Jews. And that is how they know to be in right standing with God. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are constantly criticizing Jesus, gunning for Him because He breaks the law all the time. Jesus, you healed on the Sabbath day. We don't care that this man just received a miracle that will change his life. You healed on the Sabbath. Moses said you can't work on the Sabbath. This is a work. You broke the law. Jesus, your disciples were walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. And they grabbed some tops of some shafts of wheat and they begin to eat. And you can't harvest on the Sabbath. They broke the law. Jesus points them back to the Old Testament when David goes into the temple into the tabernacle and he's hungry and the priests give him the bread that has been sanctified that is set aside for the priests and Jesus says you know this was justified David's hunger outweighed this particular law your disciples didn't wash their hands before they eat this is more than just like sanitary that's to us that's what it would be um, that there was a Far side, I remember reading years ago, and this guy walks out of the restroom, there's this large flashing light, and on the light it says, didn't wash hands, and the light starts flashing. This isn't that. This is, it's not telling your kids to wash their hands before they eat when they come out. No, this is the law. This is offensive to God. And they said, your disciples, they didn't, they didn't wash their hands. And Jesus says some things in response to that that are kind of hidden in our Bibles and how we translate it's a little softer but um, he says some if you really read what he says in response to that uh, it's a little crude he's using some really uh, pointed examples about what happens to food when it comes out of the body uh, and then he uses that analogy about the stuff that comes out of the heart and basically says it's the same thing like we you got to kind of read that closely but that's what he's saying he's like you're, you're missing the point about what it means to be clean and undefiled it's really a matter of the heart. So what Jesus is doing all through the Gospels is He is radically reconfiguring and reorienting how people enter into right standing with God. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. This is why we today don't follow so many of the tenets of the Old Testament law. There is the moral law of God which predates Moses' law and still is in effect today. We still think it's wrong to murder people, but not necessarily because it's in the Ten Commandments, because it's a moral law of God that predates that. But we do eat bacon. You may not, but if you don't eat bacon, it's probably not because of your religious beliefs. Someone said that bacon is proof that the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. Like, we get to, we get to eat bacon. They could not. Because why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Paul writes, for all the promises, meaning the law of God in Christ, are yes and in Him, amen. Everything in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. 
Jesus said, search the Scriptures. Remember, any time that Jesus talks about the Scriptures, He's speaking of our Old Testament. He said, search the Scriptures, for in them you have life, and they are they which testify of Me. All the Old Testament is about Jesus. The Gospels are the life and times of Jesus Christ. The epistles, the letters in the New Testament, are letters written to the church, which is the body of Christ. So yeah, but what about that last book called Revelation? Isn't that about prophecy in the future that's going to happen? No, the writer of, of Revelation, who is John, the same John that writes the Gospel of John, tells us in verse 1 what Revelation is about. If you want to know what Revelation is about, it's in the very first verse. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how he starts it out. The whole book of Revelation is about Jesus. It is about the unveiling of Him. And this should not surprise us because this is how God works throughout all the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, He is progressively revealing His identity, His character, and His attributes. We see Jesus in the Gospel as a newborn baby. And then we see Him as a 12-year-old boy. And then we see Him as a man. But He is always limited by time and space, operating in the economy of man through weakness and servanthood. As great as Jesus was on earth, if he is in Caesarea Philippi, he cannot at the same time be in Jerusalem. And he has to get there like everybody else. He doesn't blink his eyes and transport in time. He gets on a donkey or he walks like everybody else. He limits himself to our constraints. But in Revelation, we see him as he is. John writes... Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." This is the final reveal Jesus as He really is. In His right hand He held seven stars. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand on me and saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and the grave. That's why... We can read the words, let not your heart be troubled, and we can take those words at face value and believe in them and trust in them and hope in them. Because the Jesus that spoke those words is the same Jesus that holds the seven stars in his hand. It is Jesus revealed as he really is. I say to us this morning, take heed of the words of Jesus, let not your hearts be troubled. God is on the throne. God is sovereign. God is in control. It is not possible this morning. You say, well, you willed this. It is not possible for me to take this little thing of eye drops and throw them on the floor this morning unless God wills it. I will do nothing in my life that God does not will. He is in control. He can stop me from doing anything if He chooses. 
He can allow me to do it, but if He allows me to do it, it's because He chooses to do it. Jesus holds all power in heaven and earth in His hand. There is no political party that can stop God's purposes. There is no scheme of Satan that can stop what God wants to do in your life. There is no financial crisis that may or may not come. doesn't matter. There's no financial crisis that God cannot carry you through. God is in control. He is in control of this universe. He is in control of this world. He is not an absentee landlord that checks in on things every once in a while. God sits on the throne this morning and He is sovereign over all the universe. And in addition to that, we have scriptures, we have promises that tell us things like the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Those that walk in Him, that abide in Christ, they are being directed by the Lord. You may choose today that you need to stop by Walmart for something that you need, but you did not choose that on your own. The Lord is directing your paths and your steps every day. Jesus said you do two things. Let not your heart be troubled. He said, that's you. You decide, I will not let my heart be troubled. It's a decision that I make. I will not be shook by all the things that are around me. He said the second thing you do is believe in God. Believe. That's active. You believe in God. He said, then you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I own, I counted them last night, I own 36 commentaries on the Gospel of John. I did not read all of them or even close to half of them on this chapter, but the ones that I look like, did look at, the three or four that I looked at, I could not find any reference to what I'm getting ready to say. I'm sure somebody somewhere has mentioned this, but that is this. Jesus is the carpenter's son. Joseph, who is his mother's husband, but not Jesus' actual father, Jesus is the son of God, He's a heavenly father, but practically speaking, Joseph is Jesus' father growing up. If the kids were outside and playing and Jesus was outside playing, which he would have done, he grew up like an ordinary child, and they made reference to your dad, the kids said your dad, he knew they meant Joseph. Joseph, as a carpenter, is not a guy who works in a wood shop. I used to watch Norm Abram on PBS. If you ever saw him, he was a master carpenter. The New Yankee Workshop. He was on there for like 40 years. I love to watch Norm build things. And I used to convince myself or deceive myself that if I had the tools he had, I could probably do that too. It's all in having the tools. Like there is not one tool that he needs that he does not have. And it's all perfectly organized. And I loved watching him build things. That's not likely what Joseph was. The word carpenter in the Bible, in the New Testament, refers to a builder, more like a contractor, a builder of homes, a builder of businesses. Likely a lot of stonework. He would have done a lot of masonry. They didn't build stick-built houses back then, uh, so what they did build, a lot of it was from stone. Uh, but if Jesus 
followed, and again, this is the scripture silent on this, but if he would have followed the normal convention of that day, he was likely raised doing this kind of work. He grew up, he was going to take on his father's trade, and so he likely knew what it was like to be a builder in his early years. And so when he makes reference to his father's house and him going away to prepare or build a place, the image that in those people's minds had to come up that this is a builder, this is a guy that, that built, that is saying this. Would some of the people who knew Jesus when he was 21 years old have watched him sweat and toil and lifted stones? Maybe. Again, it's not in Scripture, but it's conjecture that I think follows logic to say that this is what Jesus grew Remember, he, he doesn't come on to ministry until he's 30 years old. He has a life before he comes into ministry. So what was he doing at 15 and 20 and 25? He likely was working in his father's trade. But what he's telling them is, dad was a builder, dad was a contractor, I helped him do a lot of that stuff, but I have a higher calling than to simply build here. I'm going to go away and build you another place. I know a man who recently built his forever home. His two kids are gone off to college. He likes to use the words, they're getting ready to get off my payroll. Um, he's in his early 50s. This is the wife and he and his, the house that he and his wife are going to probably live in forever. They build it. It's their dream home. And a couple months ago, they moved into it. I said, how's it going with the house? He said, oh, there's an issue with the quality of the paint. He said, the paint job is not right. It's just not good. And he started describing to me what it was like. And he said, I even went to the model home that we looked at. And he said, the model home wasn't like that. And of course, then you get into a lot of back and forth with contractors and, and all of this. And it only takes one bad subcontractor. But if you got to choose who you wanted to build your house, there was a list. And you've got like Bob the Builder and Carl the Contractor and here is Jesus the Messiah on this list, you're going to say, I'd like Jesus to build my house for me. That's the message he's telling us here in this verse. I'm going away to prepare a place in my Father's house. In my house, in your house, there's always something that needs to be done. Always. I mean, it's never ending, right? Something has got to be fixed, cleaned, organized, updated. There's always a project in that house. It is never ending. But this is all very temporary. But Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. I do not take this place to be as much a physical destination as much as it is a reality that comes from dwelling in Christ. And I get this from verse 3 where Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That's the key phrase. I'm going to take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Where is he at? At the second coming of Christ, when Christ returns. We talk about this a lot, that we don't get into a lot of the specifics of who, what, when, where, how. It's, we're in the big picture focus that Christ is going to return and finish what he started 2,000 years ago. There's going to be a second coming of Christ. Where is Christ at? At the second coming, we will meet him in the air and he will establish his reign where? On the earth. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. This is what Paul says. When Christ returns, the people of God, so shall we ever be with the Lord. This text is not just a promise of going to heaven. It's a promise of our final union with Christ. 
Because where I spend eternity as far as a physical location is completely irrelevant as long as I am with Christ. That's the key. As long as I am with Jesus in union with Christ, and that's what Jesus is promising. I'm going away to prepare a place. He goes, I'm going to take you into myself. It is speaking of that final union with Christ. And until then, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is Christ in us. I have often said here that we don't know exactly what that age to come will look like. But I take what Jesus says here to mean what we know from the rest of Scripture, what He is preparing for us, is what the rest of Scripture tells us that the age to come will be. We know that we will have glorified, physical, tangible, real bodies. Paul said we will have a body like as unto His glorious body. So the age to come, eternity, is not us floating around as spirit things. It is a real physical universe with physical bodies. That is what eternal life looks like. We know that we will live eternally in an age that has a renewed earth. We know that there will be no more pain, sorrow, sickness, tears, or death. Think about that. We all experience pain, physical and emotional. We all experience sickness. We all experience tears, and someday we will all, unless the Lord returns before then, we will all experience death. Every single one of us in this room will end this race in the grave, no exceptions. And in the age to come, where Jesus is preparing us, that is not the case. It is an incomprehensible reality, but it is real nonetheless. It is not a fairy tale. What I am preaching this morning is real. Now most authors today, if you read a book, most authors would write the purpose of their book in the beginning of the book. There's a section, it's called the preface. Sometimes they'll do it in introduction, but you read that introduction of that book and it says, this is why I wrote the book and this is what I intend to do in the book. Now this is not true for fiction, but for most non-fiction books, This is what you expect. John does this. John has 21 chapters. John does this, tells the purpose of the book in chapter 20. Almost at the end of his gospel, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. In other words, this is the purpose why I just wrote everything that I wrote in John. These are written. And here's the reason, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's why John writes what he writes in the Gospel of John. And what have we said week after week after week in the series on John? It's not, it is, it is all about believe in God, believe in Jesus. This is what Jesus is conveying. If you believe in God, believe also in me. The words in chapters 14 that we read. That is the essence of what John is trying to get across to us that Jesus is trying to convey. Believe. Now that belief is active. It's an action that you do. You believe. 98 times this word believe is used in the Gospel of John. It's always used, 98 times in John, it's always used as a verb. In other words, it's something you do. It's not a thing. Now Paul writes... In Romans and in Galatians, in his writings, he writes about faith. So what is faith? Faith is 
Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is tangible, but in this case, it's a noun, it's a thing. It's something that we possess. But John is writing not as faith of something that you have. John is writing about faith as what you do. You believe. You actively believe in Jesus. You believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You believe He is the divine Son of God. And as the Son of God, He is fully divine. He is God. The fullness of the deity of God dwells within Jesus Christ. It's John telling us that it's all about believing in Him and this belief leads to eternal life. Now Paul, to help you understand how the New Testament works, John is writing about Jesus in action. Real time, this is what he did and this is what we do, we believe. What Paul's doing later on in his letters is he's unpacking how this actually all works. He's drilling down into what all this means that Jesus did. So Paul uses the word faith 41 times in Romans. So we see how the Bible flows together. We have John saying, believe in Jesus. And then Paul saying, this is what happens when you believe in Jesus. This is how it works. There are people who push back against Paul's writings saying that he did not quote Jesus enough. But the four Gospels are telling us a story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are a story. They're a narrative. And what Paul is doing, Paul is taking what happens in the story of Jesus and helping us understand more in depth, in light of the Old Testament, how Jesus fits into this redemption story. He does this, Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 9, And you who were dead in the trespasses of sin, in which you once walked, following, now this is you and this is me, we were dead in our sins, we followed the course of this work, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the still in awe of the wonder of the grace of Jesus. But you let somebody be in faith for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and there can be an element of, well, Jesus saved me all those years ago, but I keep myself saved by how I live. That is not the gospel. The God, you need the gospel of Jesus today to keep you and save you as much as you did when you, the very first time that you ever thought about God. I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. Paul said, Paul, the Apostle Paul said, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. There is nothing in me that is good that is righteous. It is the gift of God. I don't care how long you've lived for God. It is the gift of God. Therefore, Paul said, Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith. Justified meaning in right standing, declared innocent of my sins. Because I have been justified by my faith, I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what John said, Jesus said in John 14, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And here's what I want to focus on in these last few minutes. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. I will be in two weeks from today, this evening, I'll be in St. Paul, Minnesota. I've never been there. Been to Minneapolis five times, never been to the Twin Cities, St. Paul. 
I still, even though I haven't been there, I don't doubt that it's real. I have full confidence that it really exists and that if I find the way there, or more importantly, if the pilot finds the way there, how much trust do we put in a person to take us six miles in the sky at 500 miles an hour? That is a lot of confidence in a human being. But I have full confidence that if I follow in my head, I'm going to leave here, I'm going to go to the airport, I'm going to get on a plane, it's going to land in Bloomington, Minnesota, I'm going to get an Uber and tell him the way, the destination, and I'm going to trust that I will end up in two weeks at a Hampton Inn in downtown St. Paul. That's the plan. I don't doubt that that will happen unless something causes that not to happen. But if everything goes according to plan, say, why would you say that? Because I've also never been in the age to come that I have talked about this morning. But I don't doubt any less that it's real just because I haven't been there. I have full confidence that it really exists because God's Word says it exists. And if I find the way there, it will be real when I arrive. And what is the way? Jesus said, I'm the way. The way is through Jesus. No man comes to the Father except by Him. We cannot lose our nerve and our faith in this pluralistic generation that demands that we believe there is more than one way to God. The esteemed theologian Oprah Winfrey argued on her program, I read this and I said, I don't want to believe what I read, I want to hear it from her lips. So I found her saying this, so there could be no mistake that there are many paths to what you call God, and someone else might call it the light, but if your loving and your kindness and your generosity bring you to the same point, it doesn't matter if you called it God along the way or not. That's the spirit of this age. You will be labeled by some as a bigot and closed-minded and discriminatory if you say Jesus is the only way to God. I don't know what the future holds, but I am young enough and have enough years left, if God allows, there may come a time, and it depends on if the trajectory that we've seen the last 10 years continues, there may come a time where I have to stand in a court of law for what I just said this morning. I hope I have the strength, and I think in times like this that God is the one that gives that strength. If the trajectory continues, whether it be me or somebody that I know in my peers, we may finish our lives sitting in a prison cell. Because it'll be, is this what you declare? Is this what you believe? Are you willing to not stand in your pulpit on Sunday morning and say Jesus is the only way? It comes down to this. Do you believe your Bible? Because Jesus said, I am the way. He said somewhere else in his writings, any, anybody that comes in, he tries to come any other way, they're a, it's a thief and a robber. You don't come to God any other way than through me. Then he says he is the truth. Truth is a person. All truth flows from the truth, the person of Jesus Christ. Truth is the nature of who God is. Twice in Isaiah 65, God is referred to as the God of truth. In the first chapter of John, he writes that the law came from Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Judaism affirms 
the fundamental tenet of Christianity that there is only one God and only one way to God. But Judaism said it was through the law of Moses. Jesus expands this saying by saying, I am the only way to God. This doesn't make two gods. There's only one God. Jesus being the Son of God does not negate the reality that there's only one God. Jesus is included as the Son of God in the divine identity of the one true God. But then he says, I'm the only way to God. I am the fulfillment of the law. This is what Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the truth. And then he says, I am the life. All life originates from Jesus. So I want to talk about three things real quick about what it means for Jesus to be the life. Again, you goes, it goes back to John, and I constantly in the sermon series am referring back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was both God and the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is, John is starting out revealing the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. The Word becomes flesh, and now the Word dwells among us. What John is doing, when John writes the first three words of John chapter 1, he is unmistakably, anybody reading that 2,000 years ago, and opening up a book, a letter that starts out in the beginning would have automatically, their minds would have went to Genesis 1. How does Genesis 1 start? In the beginning. John is he's building on Genesis 1, the creation story. He's echoing the creation story in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What John is doing is placing Jesus as the eternal God. He is placing him into the creation story. We see this other places in the New Testament. Hebrew one, Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, this is one of these scriptures where I talk about how do you know we are living in the last days? What is the identity of the last days? The identity of the last days in at least two places in the New Testament is the time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is what Scripture dubs as the last days. So the last days, we're in the last days because Russia did this. There's no scriptural basis for that. We are in the last days, if you want to use that term, we are in the last days because it is the period of time, Hebrews 2, in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son. The last days is the time marked by the era of Jesus Christ up until His second coming. We are in the last days now because we are in the time when God speaks to us through His Son. In the last days, He speaks to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and here it is, goes back to Genesis, through whom also He created the world. The writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, we don't know, but the writer of Hebrews includes Jesus in the creation story in Genesis, just like John does. Why? Because all life comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus was there as the eternal God creating the first living creatures, and He created the way in which those living creatures procreate, the way that life continues. We call it biology. The Bible calls it Jesus doing what Jesus does creating life. 
Jesus, so, so first, Jesus is responsible for all life. The second thing he does is Jesus gives us eternal life. Paul said the wages of sin is death. You sin, you earn spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life. This is the part that I, I hear this quote and that last phrase gets left off. It's like the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But Paul finishes that statement by saying, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Your eternal life is through Christ. Jesus speaks of eternal life 17 times in John's Gospel. I'm going to take the time to read some of these because I want you to see as clearly as we can what John is trying to get across to us. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, for whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's John 3.15. We all know John 3.16, but the verse before that he says, Whoever believes in him may have eternal life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 3.36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God. John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Later on in that chapter, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Like, this could not, I don't know of any place else in scripture where the writer is so emphatically just, I mean, it's, it's like he's got you on the ropes and it's not just one punch, but it's like, all right, you're going to get this over and over and over and over again. It's like, I'm going to say this throughout the whole book that I write. I'm going to talk about belief and eternal life. For this is the will of the Father, the next chapter, John 6, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. The third time in John 6, whoever feeds on my flesh, Jesus said, and drinks my blood. What do they have? You guessed it, eternal life. John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. I may have read half of the instances where that's the case, where John just keeps talking about eternal life. Do you see the picture? If you are in Christ, regenerated through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, counted righteous in Christ through faith, you will never see death, ever. It's not a thing for you. Okay, one more. John 10. Give them eternal life, he said, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I'm so grateful for that. But the reality is, and this is what I'll wind down with, is as grateful as we are for eternal life in the age to come, we're not there yet. We are not in the age to come. We, we don't have eternal life. We have eternal life living inside of us, but we're not there yet. So what about the here and now? Does Jesus have anything to say about life in the here and now? So Jesus again says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
So he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. Four chapters ago, he's a door. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Now, I want you to hear what he says here. He says, you will be saved and you will go in and out and find pasture. And it would be easy to read that you're going to go in and out and think of it like a turnstile door. Like the, I, I have the scene of Elf in my head where Elf is in the, he's never seen a turnstile door and he's just like, he's just running in circles. So what he's doing, he's going in and he's going out. He's, that's not what Jesus is saying. You go in the door and then you go out to the pasture. It's not in and out, it's in and then out to the pasture because that's where you feed. Too many believers who came in the door are just loitering. They come in the door and they just hang around the entrance. Jesus is the way in John 10, he's the door. He's the way that you get to the pasture to feed, but the door is never the final destination. Jesus says, you're the sheep, I'm the door. Come in, but don't hang around the door. I want you to go, I want you to graze, I want you to feed in the pasture. If you came to my house today, and many of you have been in my home, and I open the door and you come in my house, and we shut the door and walk in and I see you and you're just standing by the door, you say, I'm good, I'll just stand here the whole time by the door. Say, no, I, have, I want you to come in and go out to the living room. I have chairs in there. Please, sit down. If you, I don't care if you go to Disneyland or a rodeo or a ball game, you don't stop at the gate. The gate's never the point. It's the way in to the final destination. The shepherd is inviting his sheep to come and feed on the good things of the kingdom. He said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life. He is the life. And he said, and have it more abundantly. There is abundant life for us today like we've never known it. The world, her values, her principles, her systems, her priorities, they are never aligned with the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, and this is how he finishes the chapter that we read, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This promise is not reserved for preachers, or tenured Christians, or missionaries who need the miraculous just to survive another day. It is promised to whoever believes in him. And God help us to do the works of Jesus that he did. As I close and say, well, we read these verses and Jesus says greater works than what I do, you shall do. That's generally not taking, taking that I'm going to do more miraculous things, but that in greater proportion as the body of Christ, as the people of God around the world, we're going to do greater things than even what Jesus did. And I know what your response to that might be. Well, I've never raised the dead. I certainly can't walk on water. I can't go fishing for my tax money. Like, I realistically don't expect any of those things. Just say in 2023, I don't realistically expect that I'm going to go raise somebody from the dead or walk on water or do what Jesus did and tell his disciples, go fish for your tax money. Okay. Maybe not, 
but can you speak grace and truth into the lives of people on a daily basis? Can you walk not on water, but can you walk in the paths of righteousness? Can you stand for truth when you're the only one in the room standing for truth? Can you run the risk of being misunderstood for the sake of the gospel? Can you love sacrificially? Can you give sacrificially? These are all things that Jesus did. I'm not so much focused on the miracles, and I believe in miracles. I believe in the laying on of hands of the sick and they shall recover. I believe in blind people's eyes being opened up in 2023. I believe the dead can be raised in 2023. I believe in all those things. But if none of those things happen, can I be Jesus to this world? Can I represent Him in a way that people says, yes, He is the way, the truth, and the life? Because that's the only hope for this world today. What we offer today as the people of God, as the church, is the body of Christ. Which is, nobody's ever accused me of being funny. And I have zero interest in trying to be humorous in the pulpit. I have zero interest in entertaining people. I have zero interest in convincing you of a political position. I have zero interest in trying to persuade you in anything else other than Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because you can find a comedy club in the Metroplex. You can find entertainment venues. You can find rallies for political parties. What you will not find anywhere else than inside of a church is the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If we don't give this to the world, who else is going to give it to them? Not religious, not religious talk radio, not religious programming, typically. I won't say never, but typically the gospel is not being preached with integrity on most of these areas without some kind of underlying agenda behind it or driving it or paying for it. Where else but the church will people hear the only thing that will save them? Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. Stand with me this morning. Sister Sherry begins to sing uh, or lead us in, in song. I want us to pray together and then they'll sing and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, this morning, 2,000 years ago, Jesus spoke words that were recorded, not by accident, but through divine intervention. We believe the New Testament is divinely inspired in the Word of God, just like the Old Testament is. So we read the words that were spoken by our Savior. I am the way the truth, and the life. And in a world that offers us so many paths, Lord, we choose one path, and that is the path of Jesus, to walk in the commandments, the teachings, the statutes of your word. But Lord, not just to be distant disciples, but to also know that through the power and the indwelling reality of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is inside of us every day. We have the Spirit of Christ we are His. We are united with Christ, one with Him through the Holy Spirit. So that while at times we may feel we stand alone, we
don't trust our feelings, but we have faith and know that we are never alone, for Christ abides in us. He in us, through His Spirit, and we abide in Him. This mutual indwelling that is our salvation, that is our hope, that means that we will never be alone in this world. We always have Christ within us. Lord, we ask You this morning that we would not live below our means, that You are our life, and that that abundant life would be a reality for every believer. And Lord, that we would know truth today in a world of so many voices, that we would know that still small voice, and that we would know Your Word to know what truth is. I pray, Lord, that You would sanctify us, let us reflect your image more perfectly when we leave this place today than when we walked in. I pray, Lord, for every situation, for every need that you would minister to us. But most of all, Lord, that we would be lights and witnesses to a lost and dying world. We ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.